of the young Elizabeth Knapp, a pious woman of sixteen years of age, myself, Cotton Mather, having observed the following. Her tongue would be for many hours together drawn like a semicircle up to the roof of her mouth, so that no fingers applied to it could remove it. Six men were scarce able to hold her in some of her fits, but she would skip about the house yelling and howling and looking hideously. Her tongue being drawn out of her mouth to an extraordinary length, a demon began manifestly to speak to her, for many words were distinctly uttered, wherein are the labial letters, without any motion of her lips at all. Words also were uttered from her throat, sometimes when her mouth was wholly shut, and sometimes when her mouth was wide open, but no organs of speech were used therein. The chief thing that the demon spoke were horrid railings against the godly minister of the town, but sometimes, likewise, she belched out most nefandous blasphemies against the God of heaven. At least, that's what I hear. Sometimes our imaginations are captured by the possibilities of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influence the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. On this episode, episode 13, Exorcism and our fascination with demonic possessions. What is the history of exorcism and how has it been used throughout the ages? What is the source of the current increase in exorcisms and claims of demonic possession? And how does the act of exorcism itself give us control over our own will? After the break, we will compel the facts to reveal themselves and cast out the demons possessing our attentions as we explore exorcism. Howdy, theoryologists. With Halloween just around the corner, it's the perfect time to get a little scary. So let's talk about exorcisms, specifically our fascination with the modern versions of exorcism as they are used and portrayed to address demonic and spiritual possession. Of course, I'm applying a very broad brush when using the terms exorcism and possession because the approaches, severity, rituals, and intensity are as varied as the cultures and religions that hold the beliefs in the practice. For this discussion, I'm obviously coming at this from a very Western, Judeo-Christian world viewpoint, largely because that's what's portrayed in media and what most of you are thinking of when you hear the term 
exorcism. Exorcism as a practice in some form or another has been around about as long as human beings have been asking themselves why things happen, and it's never been completely abandoned. Yet, by the mid-20th century, the practice had waned considerably, uh, as had public interest. That all changed in 1973 with the cinematic release of The Exorcist. This horrific and terrifying tale, based on a book, which claimed to be based on actual events, scared the pants off us and got everyone filling up their bottles of holy water again. The art of exorcism and demonic possessions are very real for a very large percentage of the population. Statistics show that over 50% of Americans alone believe in the possibility of demonic possession. And current demand for exorcisms have skyrocketed in Europe and in Mexico. Clearly, there is something happening and people are looking for answers. Of course, there are criticisms of this practice. While some hold a secular dismissal of the practice as an archaic medieval throwback, others take a more sympathetic perspective. Those in the mental health fields, psychologists, uh, psychiatrists, and the fields of neuroscience offer explanation through greater understanding of psychological and physiological disorders that often mimic symptomatically conditions of possession. So let's dive into the background. Let's, let's flesh this out a bit. Exorcism is simply defined. It is the religious or spiritual practice of evicting demons or other spiritual entities from a person or an area that are believed to be possessed. Depending on the spiritual beliefs of the exorcist, this may be done by causing the entity to swear an oath or performing an elaborate ritual, or simply by commanding it to depart in the name of a higher power. The practice is ancient and part of the belief system of many cultures and religions. And that's simple enough a definition, but let's look into the history. The most recognizable approach to exorcism, and definitely the Hollywood version, dates to the Middle Ages with the resurgence in superstitions and demonology. Possession by evil and demonic forces were seen as the cause of most uh, aberrant behaviors, and techniques were developed, including those that caused physical pain. Exorcism, of course, is much, much older than this, with reference to exorcism found in ancient Assyrian tablets dating back to 5000 BC. Ancient Egyptians believed that demonic-like entities caused sickness and ailments. The Greeks had cults that voluntarily induced possession by the gods, which I suppose you could view as a reverse exorcism. Now, let's go through a list of some of the uh, cultures and religions that have some form of what you might call exorcism. You know, while the Christian approaches to exorcism rites are the most recognizable to most of us, the practice can be found across all major religions and pretty much occurs throughout the world. In Judaism, exorcisms are performed with prayer and musical tone meant to separate the possessing spirit from the possessed body. The practice is viewed as an act of healing for both the possessor and the possessed. Islamic exorcisms are known as rukya and is used to repair the damage caused by black magic as part of a wider body of Islamic alternative medicine. Buddhist rituals of exorcism are pretty much focused on driving out all negativity, including evil spirits. And Taoists uh, 
perform exorcism to drive out vengeful spirits or those that were conjured to possess by means of black magic. Now, in all of those uh, examples of exorcism, you see a lot of parallels between that and modern psychotherapy. But where did this modern interest of, of exorcism come about? And, of course, modern, we're looking at modern day. Um, if it's been around forever and it had faded out, why the resurgence? Let's take a little history lesson. The Manson family and a string of ritualistic mass murders. See, that really increased interest and fear of the occult. In addition, there was a 1969 publication of the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey. Anybody that has uh, uh, looked into this before or any sort of, of study on, on the occult and, the, and, uh, and demonic histories of things is going to be familiar with Anton LaVey. This, this book essentially served as key text for the Church of Satan, which he had founded in, in 1966. But the big thing... The real uh, coup de grace was the release of The Exorcist. Both the 1971 publication of the novel by uh, William Peter Blatty and the film adaptation, which was released in 1973. The Exorcist, see, profoundly impacted America's collective psyche regarding the existence of demons and pretty much single-handedly transformed uh, things like the popular Ouija board from being a fun, harmless parlor game into a malevolent device, which was capable of inducing uh, spirit possession, demonic infestation, and other paranormal activity. This, amongst other things, you know, along with with other events in the 70s um, and early 80s, culminated into a period in the 1980s and 90s that is often referred to as the Satanic Panic. Uh, I've linked a very good uh, Vox article by Aja Romano discussing this in in the show notes. I'm not going to get into the particulars. Suffice to say that these examples brought demons back into reality in the minds of the public. Now, what about frontline support for exorcism? We kind of know the background. We know what's brought this back up to the forefront. But who are the exorcists? Who are the fighters fighting the good fight against this demon horde? Well, just pulling up, there's uh, a list of of several groups uh, that that are associated with this. The International Association of Exorcists, the American Association of Exorcists, and the Order of Exorcists. Uh, You know, additionally, there's many other groups and individuals that are not associated with any particular organized uh, group or structure against it. Uh, but, but all of these, um, provide, oh, uh, counseling guidance and have some level of rules and structure and qualifications, uh, before which they, they will agree to perform an exorcism. Now, not everybody's on board with this. I mean, there are some key criticisms, you know, the rise of exorcism as a popular solution to an otherwise unexplainable and at times seemingly impossible set of behaviors, it hasn't been universally welcomed and embraced. There are plenty that see all cases of possession as misunderstood cases of mental illness and explainable, albeit frightening, medical conditions. 
The list of conditions includes things such as Tourette's, epilepsy, schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder, dissociative identity disorder, clinical anxiety, and a litany of other conditions that cause physical outbursts, disinhibition, seizures, speech dysfunction, aggression, delusions, and anatomic dysfunction. That's pretty much exorcism in a nutshell. That is the very, very high level of uh, uh, history on that. And really the, 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 both the fighters and the uh, dissidents on it. So let's move into the theoriology on this. The theoriology on this subject proved rather difficult. I spent hours and hours pouring through various websites and listening to podcasts on specific cases and histories. By the way, I'm going to recommend a very interesting three-part podcast series on the specific exorcism case of Annalise uh, Michel, or Michel, which can be found over at the Astonishing Legends podcast. This was five full hours across three episodes that delve fully into this case uh, and, and the curious nature of it and providing a bit of a history in the process. I mean, it was, it was excellent. It was, it was a great listen. Anyway, as I was saying, there are loads of, of information regarding possession and exorcism. But I quickly realized the fatal flaw in my approach if we were going to actually answer our question. See, it's easy to get it caught up in the medical and psychotherapeutic explanations given for belief and suspicions of possession and the need for exorcism. It's also very easy to get distracted into a discussion of what possession behaviors are similar to and how they're similar to epilepsy and anxiety disorders, Tourette's, OCD, and the like, and what seems genuinely supernatural. There's loads of that, and you can find that on tons of other podcasts already. Remember, though, our goal is to discover our fascination with the topic of exorcism, not why people find themselves to be possessed, or the possible historical misunderstandings that may have led to some cases of mistaken identity leading to exorcism. I mean, though these are important, and in some discussions can explain what put the public in a receptive state of mind, that's not the case with, with exorcism. Most of these physical conditions and neurological disorders have been known to some degree for the last hundred years or longer. We will discuss now one recently identified disorder that could provide some insight, but we're not going to dive into the argument of whether exorcism is addressing uh, demonic possession or not. Now, we're, we're going to explore what exorcism really means to us as an audience, a public that loves to hear the stories, see movies, be appalled and intrigued at the same time. We are going to find out why it scares us. As I said, there's some validity to looking at these uh, these disorders and understanding how uh, how they affect our perceptions of these behaviors and, and understanding them or not understanding them more to the point uh, leads to uh, questions, concerns, and interpretations of, of behaviors as uh, as something perhaps. Uh, supernatural. We're going to look at one particular uh, disorder, uh, and, and it's called anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. 
Now, don't ask me to get into this in depth. Uh, this is actually very new, and, and it's not something that a lot of people can explain, and I certainly can't, And but you'll see why. Now, this is an article taken uh, uh, that I've taken that's written by Nesreen uh, Shaheen, who is the a director and the a founding member of the Anti-NMDA Receptor Encephalitis Foundation. Okay, the first diagnosed case of NMDARE in Canada occurred in a 12-year-old girl seen at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa in 2008. Symptoms began with memory loss following a flu-like illness. The child would ask questions of her mom uh, and then following an explanation would ask it again. Routine blood tests and, and neurological testing in the emergency department didn't reveal anything. And the symptoms were attributed to anxiety, and the patient was discharged to the care of her general practitioner. Well, but within days of the evaluation, the nature of the illness changed. The child started exhibiting delusional behavior. She was speaking about herself in third person while being assessed by her general practitioner and suffered a dramatic change in behavior. In fact, there was an example given that while they were stopped in traffic en route to the hospital, the child calmly undid her seatbelt, jumped from the car, and started pursuing a city bus as if possessed. When not allowed to board the bus, she became aggressive, kicking and yelling obscenities, <laughs> quote-unquote blasphemies against the God of heaven, and all others in the vicinity. An ambulance was called and she was admitted to the hospital, following which there were six weeks of psychiatric and neurological assessment that yielded no diagnosis until a single test performed on the cerebrospinal fluid returned a positive result. The discovery of circulating autoantibodies directed against the, now follow me here, the GLU-N1 receptor subunit of the central nervous system NMDA receptors that confirmed the diagnosis was this anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, providing a medical diagnosis for the uh, this ethereal transformation that the family had witnessed in those around her. Now, as this case illustrates, uh, this form of encephalitis uh, most often begins pretty innocuously with flu-like symptoms, and it, uh, which may serve to increase the permeability of the blood-brain barrier, allowing these antibodies in the blood to penetrate to the uh, central nervous system and then setting the stage for you know, the bigger events to come. Um, over those you know, the following days and weeks after this first stage, this transformation is unmistakable. Psychiatric symptoms uh, predominate uh, characterized by delusions, hallucinations, extreme agitation, confused thinking, disinhibited behaviors, such as hypersexuality or hyperreligiosity. During this phase of the illness, most patients require admission to the hospital and implementation of chemical or physical restraint. A further decline is heralded by the appearance of neurological signs that include seizures, memory loss, loss of coherent speech, loss of mobility, ocular deviations, catatonia, which is that, you know, inability to move, 
like they're in a frozen state. The absence of sleep, which lasts for days, weeks even, um, and involuntary movements. Now, you know, there's a real good reason with this, uh, with this form of encephalitis, uh, why people are drawn to ideas of possession. I mean, that is mirror for mirror, many, many of the cases. In fact, that's often could be the, the textbook description of how it's, uh, conveyed, um, in Hollywood with every movie, this form of encephalitis. And here's the kicker was only discovered in 2007. So we have a long way to go before we fully understand the true possibilities of the human brain. I mean, it is still supernatural in many ways, and perhaps legitimately so. This condition has just been discovered. I mean, it is still in the the front lines of study. And just because of a lot of these conditions uh, mirror um, those of, of, of possessions, of claimed demonic possessions, uh, does not necessarily mean they're related. But in some cases, certainly this has been mistaken as possession when it's this, uh, this encephalitis form. But, you know, again, I don't want to dive headfirst because we could spend tons of time. Like I told you earlier, there's hour-long, multi-hour-long uh, podcasts out there. There's pages, pages, books, volumes written about this. And we could go over every condition, every disorder, and list all of the symptoms and say, aha, there it is. But that really doesn't answer the question. Why does it really fascinate us? Well, it comes down to a single concept, volition. See, no matter what you think of possession and exorcism in terms of belief, the expression of demonic possession, by that I mean the outward expression, and... uh how it appears, is frightening. Possession, if real, symptomatically matches many physiological, neurological, and physical disorders. All of these things attack us at a core level. They take away our will. They remove our control. What do I mean by that? What is volition? Simply put, it's the faculty or power of using one's will. And this from the National Institute of Health. Neurological disorders of volition may be characterized by deficits in willing and or agency. When we move our bodies through space, it's, it's that sense that we intended to move willingly and that our actions were a consequence of this intention, that self-agency. And that gives us the sense of uh, voluntariness and a general feeling of, of being in control. So with that, definition. What does demonic possession mean to our volition? Well, it's the loss of our volition because it is taken from us, whether by means of a, a physiological disorder or through demonic influence and control. It's a loss of control. We lose an essential aspect of ourselves. The thought of falling victim to this external influence is terrifying. Dr. Friedman Schaub, who's an author and radio host, uh, describes it like this. The need to stay on top of everything and manage the circumstances and people around us is often rooted in the deep-seated fear of losing control. This fear can lead to a vicious cycle 
causing us to believe that hypervigilance, I'm sorry, hypervigilance, micromanaging, and even obsessive behaviors are the only way to maintain some sense of power and control, when in actuality, it's fear and anxiety that are controlling our lives. You know, as the to-do list gets longer and the periods of unscheduled time get shorter, a sense of unease creeps in. Somehow, no matter how hard we try, the mountain of unfinished tasks and obligations seems to grow only larger, increasingly overshadowing our lives. Our initial frustration, the result of not being able to make headway, inevitably turns into stress, anxiety, and a sense of being overwhelmed. Then everything becomes too much and too difficult to handle, and we don't know where to begin or what to do. From this point, we are, we just, we're just a hop, skip, and a jump away from feeling out of control. He goes on to say, we interpret small mishaps and incidences such as spilling a glass of milk or misplacing a bill or being cut off in traffic as personal attacks by life or the universe, and that pushes us over the edge into the abyss of despair and powerlessness. Our lives appear more and more overwhelming and unmanageable as we perceive the increasing number of situations and people as unsafe and therefore something we must avoid. Now he he goes off in there. That that's that discussion, and you can see he bled into what happens as that anxiety takes over, and and that was the focus of his discussion. But that anxiety is kicked off by a sense of a loss of control and a loss of will. See, our our volition is something that drives all of our actions, and we are very protective of it. And anything that takes it away, even just the perception of losing control gives us great pause. Therefore, we personify the threat. How many times have you heard the phrase struggling with our inner demons or fighting one's demons in reference to struggling with an addiction or a mental or emotional trauma, an event? So, volition and demonic possession are, I mean, they're at odds. It's a battle. And the idea is that something is stolen from us. But demonic possession gives us something to target. So with that, we're not just talking possession, right? We're talking exorcism. But what does the exorcism then mean for volition? Based on our previous discussion, well, the concept gives a means of truly regaining control. And that's the answer. That's why exorcism is fascinating. See, if demonic possession means that there is an external influence taking our control, then exorcism becomes the means of getting rid of it. Exorcism gives us a tangible action which we can, by which we can take back our volition. See, if the, if the loss of control is due to internal disorders of the body or mind, the, the loss becomes less tangible. You know, we're fighting against an evil presence, but... But instead, we're fighting against ourselves. I mean, sure, you know, pharmacology and therapy have shown positive results. But clearly, modern medicine doesn't have all the answers. Just look at uh, the, uh, the encephalitis. Things are still being discussed, uh, discovered, just as we discussed earlier. I mean, we're still figuring out these potential causes and disorders. If we're fighting ourselves, then there's a chance we lose ourselves completely. And that's terrifying. 
Exorcism, on the other hand, dispels monsters and demons. It gives us our control back because once the invading force is gone, our own selves are still there to resurface. Exorcism is comforting. Just think back to the movies on exorcism. You know, the long-term impact, the real scare doesn't come from the jump scares. You know, that just keeps you in the seats and, and, and keeps you in the theater. No, it rather it comes from either the failure of the exorcism or the possibility that it didn't work. You know, losing the fight against the inner demons, that's what keeps us up at night. And that's why it's so fascinating. Well, that's the gist of our theoryology. And and before we wrap it up, let's let's put this through our endurance test questions. All right, how long has this per- perception been around? Well, exorcism has been around millennia. It's been around as long as, as man has tried to understand what causes evil action. But as for the modern fascination, well, it really saw its return in the early 1970s, especially in the Western world. Has it had a large influence in popular culture and media? Undoubtedly. I mean, I won't run through the list of pop culture influences, but just go search for exorcism movies. In fact, there's a new one coming out soon. I think the, it's called The Exorcism of Hannah Jane. Um, previously was The Exorcism of Emily Rose. You know, if you aren't familiar with those, that, that they're great. And if you really want to go to the granddaddy of them all, if you haven't sat down and watched The Exorcist, released in 1973, watch it. It is as terrifying today as it was then, and it will keep you up. Is it still relevant today? Well, let's answer that question, I think, with the resounding yes. Very much so. There's an increased amount each year of sanctioned exorcists listed across the globe. And that's in addition to mediums, psychics, and paranormal researchers that provide their own brand of exorcism and cleansing. And the recent discovery of this anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis is just another reason why exorcism will remain relevant. We don't know all the causes of all the behaviors. And where science doesn't cure us, we search for other answers. And finally, will it continue to capture public imagination going forward? That's a yes, too. The demand is growing throughout the world. As more cases are recorded, as stories are told, we will continue to see more and more of it in our media, and it will continue to capture our imaginations. The obsession we have over our self-control isn't going anywhere anytime soon. All right, to wrap up, I've come to the conclusion that when it comes to the validity of exorcism, there is no clear answer one way or the other at least with our current understandings. You know, currently there's room for both modern mental health approaches and safe, cautious exorcism practices. Both areas should continue to grow and improve, focusing on the safety and health of the patient and or uh, possessed victim. You know, when it comes to issues of the mind and body, it seems that our understanding is growing, but the answers aren't all there. Now, as for me personally, I know I've talked through this and I may sound very skeptical about about the exorcisms. I may have put too much of this in terms of an objective viewpoint and 
and tried not to throw my my personal thoughts on the matter. You know, for me, uh, for me as a matter of faith, I, I believe that there are things that we can't understand, and there are things that that we'll never be able to tackle with modern medicine. Um, I mean, if I'm going to believe that a higher power exists, then I have to accept that there's other things out there that can get to us. So, you know, that's there's always room for that possibility. But I'm also not quick to jump to it. And uh, I'm going to trust that uh, as we continue to to grow our understandings from a medical perspective, from a scientific perspective, that we're meant to fight these things. And anything that gets down our our conclusion that uh, that something is is demonic, that something is that evil that can take over people, that can attack us, I'm going to consider a good thing. You know, if we can take care of ourselves and evil doesn't have that much of an influence in the world, hey, that's good news. Okay, that is all for today. Thank you all so much for joining me. And as always, if you like what you hear, go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button so that you don't miss any of this discussion. As always, you can connect with me via email at contact at conspiracytheriology.com. Join the Facebook group, find me on Twitter, at TheriologyPod, or please just recommend the show to others. Like I always say, there is no higher compliment than to know that you shared the show with others. Let them know that they can hear the show anywhere that they listen to podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much any podcast app out there. Or just send them to the website. All the info for the show can be found at the website, conspiracytheriology.com, including how to support the show on the new Patreon page. Music is by Adam Henry Garcia. And if you like what you hear uh, and you want to hear more of Adam's music, visit adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. All right, y'all. I know this has been a long one, but we got through it. And then I'll see you again in two weeks when we will tackle another theory and make sense of the public popularity. So until next time, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology. Theory.